The entire Superhero Rewind archive is now available on major podcast platforms, including Spotify and Anchor. New episodes will publish simultaneously on YouTube and on podcast services, with 48-hour early access for patrons. Now you can download episodes, avoid YouTube ads, and listen on the go with ease. And you'll find episodes that haven't been available for a long time there as well. Links in the description. I wonder if Riceroni is the San Francisco treat. Nah, it's gotta be something related to sushi. Maybe rice and nigiri? nigiri aroni Yeah, after a decade of making the series, I'm still finding ways to keep it fresh. Sushi jokes! story analysis and retrospective. If you haven't seen this film, you might want to before listening to this review. Big Hero 6 is one of those delightful, charming movies that I loved when I saw it and never think to go back to. The couple times I have, I found myself thinking, oh yes, that's right, this is a standout. It's full of heart, but it's not sappy. It's action-packed, but the story isn't lost in the spectacle. It's familiar, but not completely derivative. And it turns a few superhero tropes on their heads, making three things fresh again. The cartoon superhero movie for kids, the origin story, and the team-building setup film. It's really quite good, but I kind of keep forgetting about it, and I know I'm not the only one. The single film, especially in this genre, has been dead a long time, and has been replaced with the franchise. Obviously, there are exceptions, and this is one of them. But because the billion-dollar TV series that only has an episode every year or two and that go to the theater instead of your television, you know, until 2020, I expect the series to write very differently in the next few years if the consequences of the pandemic put theatrical blockbusters largely in our rearview mirrors, but only time will tell. Some of even the best most acclaimed, even huge box office successes don't last as long in the public consciousness as they used to. Take The Martian. It's all I heard about when it came out, and the hype continued to some degree for months later. But with as many other movies and TV shows and streaming services vying to dominate discussions at the water cooler, or more often now on Facebook groups or Discord servers, it's hard to say if that movie will be remembered as a science fiction classic like E.T. was. I think it should be, and when I finally got around to seeing it, I said in a review, it's absolutely one of my new favorite films. I thought it might become my favorite film, and yet I haven't gone back to it. I've rarely even thought about it. And this is entirely anecdotal. It could just be me. My circumstances. It might just be because I'm busy watching and discussing other things. And that might be the case, too, with Big Hero 6. Again, this doesn't happen with everything. Frozen was a phenomenon, and kids, especially little girls, certainly didn't forget about that movie. But I think it might have filled a niche that was missing in the contemporary landscape, which The Martian and Big Hero 6 maybe weren't doing. After all, there have been plenty of science fiction and superhero films recently. But look back at Big Hero 6's success. It won the Oscar for Best Animated Feature. It did $658 million against a $165 million budget, 89% on Rotten Tomatoes. It would have remained more prominently in the zeitgeist if only it had gotten a good sequel. 
Sure, there are lots of successful animated movies with sequels that didn't perform as well and arguably haven't done a ton to help keep those properties alive with audiences like Ralph Breaks the Internet and The Lego Movie 2. I don't hear people talk about those movies any more or less than I did before the sequels came out. And the Lego movie is one of those special cases of breaking through the noise and becoming something of a cultural touchstone that really stuck with people. Incidentally, it came out the same year as Big Hero 6. Is it possible the Lego movie ultimately overshadowed it and likely only lost the Oscar to this movie because it for reasons I'll never understand, wasn't even nominated. But the big difference between Big Hero 6 and those movies is that whether the powers that be wanted those to be mega franchises from the start, this one absolutely watches as the start of something rather than a one-off. It's a great self-contained story, and the lack of sequels doesn't diminish it. But I've rarely been as surprised not to hear anything about more follow-ups to a movie, considering it performed beautifully and is a setup film. I realize this series did continue on television with a two-season 2D effort on the Disney Channel called Big Hero 6 The Series, and I can't speak to its quality because I haven't checked it out yet. When I do, I'll probably cover it in some capacity. But it's odd that it took three years before that show finally saw the light of day. On the one hand, I applaud Disney for not rushing something out just to cash in on the popularity of a movie they maybe weren't prepared to continue with for whatever reason. On the other hand, it'll be a shame if it's buried and forgotten. The directors Don Hall and Chris Williams discussed the possibility of a sequel in 2015, but I'm not finding any information on why it was decided not to continue with a film series after that. I'm curious about the show, which I've never heard anyone at all say anything about. This watch is like a brilliant big-budget pilot for a show introducing a whole team of characters beyond Hero who are itching to get their own stories. So if it's great, I think that is the perfect medium for this. I'm not saying that every good movie needs to keep pumping out sequels to stay relevant. I am lamenting that these days that often seems necessary, especially in superhero media, to keep the thing from being totally forgotten. 2014 was absolutely Disney's most creative year when it came to Marvel properties. Marvel Studios' best film, in my view, came out that year with The Winter Soldier, a movie that breaks out of the typical MCU formula, delivering a poignant and intense spy thriller with a universe-leveling twist no one saw coming. Then Marvel's riskiest film came out that year, Guardians of the Galaxy, based on an obscure comic series most people had never heard of that filled a space adventure void and instantly created an A-list property from the most unlikely source. And then you had Big Hero 6, a movie presented as a standard animated Disney picture, not a Pixar film but certainly up to its usual story standards and an animation caliber that's not to be sneezed at rather than another Marvel Studios film, proving that Disney was willing to mine the well of its acquisition of thousands of characters, both popular and obscure, and in this case even more obscure than Guardians of the Galaxy. This was a property with very little material made for comics by Man of Action. And if there was a good marketable idea there, it maybe didn't matter if it already had brand recognition. John Lasseter or some other producer would be allowed to run with it and make it into a household name. They seem to be doing just what Hero does in the film. Look at what they have from a different angle and try something new. 
rather than building the same tired widget again and again and hope someone will still buy it. I hope Disney continues to look at Marvel's stable and try more unproven, off-the-beaten-path projects like this. It's been six years that don't have to be part of their larger shared universe. Big Hero 6 is based on a Marvel thing, but that doesn't matter. It's not advertised as a Marvel property, and it has no connection whatsoever to the big superhero names Disney already made billions on, besides a clever Stan Lee cameo. As far as general audiences are concerned, it might as well be a totally original thing, just like Guardians. Unlike Guardians, it's not interested in paving the way for anything more. Again, as odd as that is to me, because it does watch like a franchise starter, I have a lot of respect for that Pixar-esque approach, because the movie itself is probably better for it. 2014, also incidentally, was the year of X-Men Days of Future Past. Not Disney or MCU, but another movie based on a Marvel property, and one that I had a, if you'll indulge perhaps the overstatement, life-changing experience with. Like Big Hero 6, that's a movie about struggling with loss and finding the strength to move beyond personal insecurities and live your life. I only mention it to say, wow, I had forgotten just how killer a year 2014 was for superhero movies. I'm always talking about how 2008 changed things with Dark Knight and Iron Man. 2014 was the innovative, mold-breaking year 2008 paved the way for. Now I want to look at those three general superhero categories the movie falls into and discuss why it's such an effective and atypical example of each. First, a kiddie superhero movie. But it is a smart and thoughtful one, not a mindless, throwaway, fart-joke-filled diversion that does nothing to stimulate your kid's imagination. There's enough spectacle with the chases and the fights and cuteness factor with Baymax to hold even little kids' attention. But it gives its entire audience credit it dumbs nothing down, is bold enough to let its characters act like real people, to let actions have real consequences, and to keep the stakes entirely personal. It's about a kid who loses his brother, and it's not disnified by the end. I, there are characters we think are dead earlier in the film who turn out to still be alive by the end, but that is always done with purpose. Hero's brother isn't one of them, and the movie wouldn't work if he was. It's a wonderful message for children. If you lose someone, especially a father figure or someone close you looked up to and relied on for direction, they don't take what they taught you with them. It doesn't sugarcoat Hero's loss, and the point is not superficial. The first time Baymax, the medical robot invention Tadashi left behind, says that Tadashi is there with them, Hero dismisses that as a hollow sentiment. Because it is if it was what Baymax meant. And it is what other people around him mean. It's what people say to make you feel better when you've lost someone. And it doesn't really help when you're hip deep in the grieving process. The moral of this story is not, as long as you remember the one you've lost, they're still with you. It's that it takes time to heal. You have to allow yourself to go through all stages of grief. And yes, that person is gone forever. And it's important to let yourself process the enormity of that loss. But what they gave you, if it was nurturing and healthy, will help you to move forward. And you'll realize that it's a deep-seated part of you that doesn't go away just because they did. That's so much more nuanced than I think I've ever seen it handled in a kid's movie. It's as important and profound as what The Incredibles has to say about modern education and a culture of mediocrity. And like that movie, 
The superhero part is just the trappings of an intimate, heartfelt exploration of why family matters to an individual. And I think it handles some of the same themes as well as Onward would, six years later, an actual Pixar movie that's also about a teenager coping with the loss of a close family member comes to realize how important his brother has been to developing his healthy worldview and morality. Although there, the dead relative and the brother are separate entities, the dead relative being his father, who he comes to realize had less to do with raising him than his brother did. And the dead relative is even, to some capacity, present throughout the film post-mortem, living on in a way through his invention in Big Hero 6, immortality through invention and partially reconstituted as a pair of legs in Onward. I think this movie is absolutely in the same league as those. I'd also compare it to The Iron Giant, another movie about a kid and a robot companion who he runs around with like he might a faithful dog. In The Iron Giant, the kid teaches the robot how to be a hero. In Big Hero 6, the robot does that for the kid. Baymax's You Are Not a Gun scene is an interesting inversion of that classic moment in The Iron Giant, because it's Hero who creates the programming that momentarily turns him into a mindless killing machine in the first place, by taking the core memory card, the representation of his brother's soul, out of the robot, which prevents him from harming a human being, and replaces it with a destructive card, the representation of his own thirst for revenge and his blind rage overlearning the man responsible for his brother's death was his mentor and friend, Robert Callahan. In The Iron Giant, Hogarth teaches a weapon to be a protector. Here, Hero almost turns a synthetic healer into a weapon, the thing that ultimately will help him recover mentally from wounds inflicted by his brother's death. And that almost happens because the man who was supposed to be a father figure for Tadashi, the role his brother has taken on for him, and after the loss of their parents, took his brother away from him. If I'm right about what happened with the fire, more on that later. It's also interesting that this and The Iron Giant were made by big early Pixar creators, but neither of them is a Pixar film. This is some pretty powerful stuff in an otherwise light and fun superhero movie, and the balance it strikes between serious drama and absurd whimsy surprised me in much the same way another animated superhero movie did, Megamind. That's more of a direct superhero parody, but it's also about the importance of good role models on children without parents. I won't spend a lot of time comparing these two also. The point is, Big Hero 6 is the latest in a tradition of animated superhero films that explore true-to-life family dynamics in a meaningful way. I guess there's The Incredibles too, but... We'll get to that eventually. I think the reason so many of these movies are about that theme is because Hero is a selfless archetype I imagine most of us see as really rare and special. Just like it takes a particularly crappy upbringing to bring someone to the extreme of evil villain or bad guy, it's reasonable to assume that most superheroes would either need an equally nurturing upbringing to lead them to such noble or altruistic behavior, or else they'd need some other extreme life-changing event to lead them there. It's easy to showcase the extremes of good and evil through family structures, which children can relate to and it makes it easier to tell a story that resonates with children without losing the core elements of good superhero fiction. 
The second category I want to look at is the origin story. This is the opposite of the typical pointless superhero origin where an inciting incident contrived just to get the ball rolling is stretched into a two-hour story, like the 2004 Fantastic Four film, or the 2016 Fantastic Four film, or Green Lantern. This is an origin for the Big Hero 6 team, yes, but for Hero, our protagonist, his becoming a superhero at the end watches like almost an afterthought, at least for his own arc. It's not about how this kid became a superhero. His continuing on in a costume saving the world at the end is almost obligatory. I could just as easily see him putting it away and just going to the science academy like he'd planned before Tadashi was killed. The origin itself is the story and is only an origin story if you knew there's more to come. It's like Batman Begins in that way. It's unlike Batman Begins in that our protagonist doesn't create a persona to cope with loss, but rather allows himself to become a better person, and he himself is the superhero. Bruce Wayne has to create a symbol and a mask, both to change the world around him, but also to envelop himself inside so he can fight past his fears. He has to reinvent himself while pretending to the rest of the world that he's still the same person he always was. But Hero is always changing and growing. He has no superhero name. Hero the Teenager and Hero the Superhero are one and the same. Like Arthur from The Tick. I guess Hero got lucky that his parents gave him a name that already sounds like a superhero alias. There are a few Japanese characters that do this. If you want to be a hero and your name is already Hero, it seems like a missed opportunity to call yourself anything else. Hero from the TV series Heroes does this too. Man, how many times can I say Hero in one review? And that character has the same thing this one does, where his name is prophetic. And, you know, he's called that because the word hero, the English word, is in the title. Hero, uh, the hero from this film, has all the makings of a hero. He has a technical wizardry that allows him to invent a machine with endless applications for crime fighting. His microbots. He has a mentor in his brother who helped take him off a dangerous, self-destructive path because he didn't have parents there to properly guide him and pointed him to something nobler. And when Tadashi dies, he has the standard tragic motivation to help people or, like Bruce Wayne, to choose vengeance over justice and go down the villainous path. It would, by the way, be interesting to see that in another superhero story. A villain ironically named Hero who seemed destined to be the next Superman, but turned into Lex Luthor instead. The word hero in Japanese doesn't, of course, actually directly translate to the English word hero. I said the name was prophetic. I should have said phonetically prophetic. But as luck would have it, the meaning is close enough. I mean, we probably wouldn't keep naming Japanese superheroes that if it translated to murderer or tyrant or lunatic. It actually means several different things, depending on the Japanese characters used. I don't know what the written character would be in this case, but Hero's name could mean anything, from generous or tolerant, to prosperous, to abundant. All of those seem appropriate for a traditional stalwart superhero. One of the things that impressed me on first viewing is that this movie isn't a coming-of-age story. It doesn't go at all where I expected it to, based on the opening scene. When we first see Hero, he's competing at underground bot fights and illegally betting on his own fights, hustling champions. He gets caught and arrested after beating a guy with a bot that turns out to be the precursor for his microbot tech. A really tightly woven narrative here. 
textbook set up and payoff. And when he's bailed out, the very next thing he does is plan to go to another fight. So Tadashi, under the pretense of driving him there, introduces him to an alternative activity to use his skills that's equally rewarding if he'll give it a chance, totally legal, and that he has a real future in. Tadashi takes Hiro to his research lab and introduces him to his inventor friends. And in 10 minutes, he's had his coming-of-age story. He's still got plenty to learn, but the whole movie isn't about a rebellious kid who finally goes on the straight and narrow. That's just the setup for the status quo. It's not even the inciting incident. It's just background, and probably could have been its own movie. I've seen that movie lots of times. That's Back to the Future, or The Last Starfighter, or The Karate Kid. And I'm sure there are plenty of other examples that weren't made in the 80s. It's covering some rarely mined ground for superhero stories. A teenager who has pretty much come into his own already, but then has his newfound confidence and sense of responsibility tested almost immediately. He's like Robin from Batman Forever, except he doesn't immediately jump to revenge, which is a really mature take on the tragic backstory. It's dramatic, but it isn't melodramatic. Hero doesn't spend the whole movie talking about how much he wants to see his brother's killer pay. At first, of course, that's because everyone thinks the fire at the science convention is an accident. I'm pretty sure it wasn't. Again, we'll get there. But even when he decides someone must be behind it, he just wants to catch the villain in the kabuki mask. He has no intention on killing him until he's blindsided by the revelation of his identity. He thinks that it's the planted red herring from the beginning. Alastair Cray, voiced by Alan Tudyk, by the way, who's played at least a couple slimy corporate CEOs like this, including one in the short-lived DC sitcom Powerless, but it turns out to be Robert Callahan. I guess the G is silent. Teacher and mentor to not just Tadashi, but the entire Big Hero 6 team. Callahan is voiced by the great James Cromwell, one of the more immediately recognizable voices in the movie who brings an authority and pathos to a tragic antagonist and really sells him as sympathetic but horribly misguided. Which makes a lot of sense. If you're an elderly man with no martial arts training, your only prayer at being a menacing supervillain is controlling a machine with your mind that lets you stand tall with your hands folded behind your back most of the time as it carries you wherever you want to go. I like that when Hero thinks it's Cray, he's not enraged, and he's content to see the man put in prison, although he is a bit slow on the uptake in suspecting Cray, considering Cray tried to buy the patent for Hero's microbots right after his demonstration, Callahan told him Cray cuts corners and is irresponsible with his research, and Sergeant Flying Kabuki Mask is blatantly using his tech out in the open. And, in fact, one of Hero's microbots being drawn to the villain is how he finds him in the first place. I would think he'd be suspect number one in Hero's mind right away and wouldn't need to see that surveillance footage first. Especially since the audience is clearly meant to suspect him. And we're getting all of this exclusively from Hero's perspective. But I really like how close to home that hits for Hero and how seeing that face is what makes him go nuclear. I didn't fully buy the scene at the end of Civil War with Tony Stark when he goes postal on Bucky for killing his parents, but I bought it here. It's not just, you killed my brother, prepare to die. It's that he was, for Tadashi, what Tadashi is for him, and he betrayed that. And in his anger, as he again tries to use Baymax to murder that former mentor, a robot built by his brother who's been trying to help him heal from Tadashi's death, 
and which he's just pulled the closest thing left on Earth to Dashi's soul out of to accomplish this. If Honey Lemon hadn't stopped him, Hero would have become something arguably worse than Callahan, because he would have perverted his brother's work and soiled his memory in order to avenge him, while becoming the same thing Callahan has. The symbolism inherent in that is pretty profound. One of the major superhero motifs this movie uses, of course, is the villain that is a mirror for our hero. They're the same, but there's that one fatal flaw that separates them that moral trap that the hero is somehow more equipped not to fall into. That connection is usually ideological and leads the two to different but parallel motivations. Xavier and Magneto both care about the social plight against mutants, but to paraphrase Xavier in X-Men First Class, they do not want the same things. And their differing backgrounds and influences have a lot to do with why they come to different conclusions. Same thing with Bruce Wayne and Ra's al Ghul in Batman Begins. Both want to save the world, but they don't agree on what that looks like or what sacrifices are acceptable. Very often, that villain creates the hero, or the hero creates the villain, or both. I say I made you, you gotta say you made me. I mean, how childish can you get? It is the 89 Batman thing in this case. The villain caused the tragedy that created the hero, but the hero created the situation that made the villain. In this case, the microbots Hero invented, which you had to know were going to fall into the wrong hands. They're just not the hands you might have expected. That tradition is alive and well here, but it's not cliche. Cray really is a bad guy. He's just not the bad guy. Instead of making him a typical evil corporate tycoon who goes off half-cocked and becomes a crazed costumed villain in his quest for power, like Yellowjacket in Ant-Man, Cray is mostly a plot device, but in a good way. It would be a problem that there's not more to him, I think, if he was our primary antagonist. But he's practically a force of nature here. He represents the unfortunate circumstances of the sometimes greedy and corrupt world the altruistic Callahan has to function in. A man who just wants to create technology that improves people's lives. The social commentary is about the evils of unchecked power in a capitalistic society. Here, a futuristic and fun total fusion between America and Japan that could geographically take place in either or neither country. And I think that's a really cool idea, given how much both countries have influenced each other ever since World War II. But its main goal is not to be a cautionary tale. It's more about how easy it is to become the thing you hate when you allow yourself to meet evil with more evil. It's about a cycle of violence. Callahan's daughter dies in a hurried and unsafe experiment with Stargates. Yeah, there's Stargates in this movie. So he tries to kill Cray in a fire, I, I think, and inadvertently does exactly the same thing to Hero. In his thirst for revenge, he takes the person someone else cares about most away from them when Tadashi dies, effectively becoming the same as Cray. And if it weren't for his friends making sure he doesn't cross a line, Hero, again, would have become just like them, and maybe worse. By the end, not only does Hero take his opportunity for change in realizing how similar a place he and Callahan are both coming from, and letting Baymax, in a way, his brother watching over him from beyond the grave, be his guide, but he manages to save the interdimensional astronaut girl everyone thought had died and whose apparent death began this whole cycle. And while in the crazy pocket dimension she found herself lost in, 
which is gorgeously animated and is more interesting, I think, than the kaleidoscope scape of the subatomic universe at the end of Ant-Man, he has to sacrifice Baymax, the living embodiment of the healing and guidance his brother gave him to save her. Now, he'll get lucky, of course, that Baymax somehow pulled the memory card with his brother's programming out in time and without Hero noticing and put it in his rocket arm when he shot Hero back out through the Stargate. I mean, we've got a TV show to make in three years, and kids are not going to accept it without Baymax. I kind of question, by the way, whether Baymax would still be himself enough to act with that kind of free will without the card in him that was coded for healthcare because he seems to do this for Hero and not necessarily for himself, but I don't know. Maybe it is just an act of self-preservation that's inherent to his core programming. I do have some questions about Baymax's coding, and I'll get to that in a few minutes. But regardless of the fact that Tadashi still lives on through his work at the end, which I see as the universe rewarding Hero for doing the right thing, Hero proves his heart is in the right place, and he's worked through his pain so he can truly function without his brother there to keep him on the right track. And thank God Tadashi himself isn't somehow resurrected. And thank God the chip that I see as a symbolic soul isn't literally Tadashi's consciousness, like he's just Jarell from the Fortress of Solitude from now on. Hero can move on because he is satisfied with his care. Like in so many superhero origins, Hero's arch-nemesis is a dark reflection of himself. It's interesting that neither takes a hero or villain name. They're not building personas. They are who they are and are both in danger of losing themselves. At least, it's an interesting comparison in the film we have. According to the toy line, Callahan does have a villain name, Yokai, but it's not in the movie, so I still wanted to mention that. And sure, Hero doesn't wear a mask, but that's just a matter of practicality. He's not planning on starting a superhero career. He's just looking for a guy, and initially not out for blood. If you want to murder someone, you need a disguise. That's like killing people 101. And this is already, apparently, a superhero universe even before Big Hero 6 forms, so it's just natural this guy would wear a villain suit. I love how thoughtfully and intimately this is handled. The stakes are all small and personal, besides a gateway that's threatening whoever's around in the moment at the end, but it's not a world-ending threat, I don't think. There's no big destructive blue light in the sky at the end. The stakes are simply a man's daughter and a boy's soul. That's it. They're both traumatized by loss, and they both want the same thing. They want the person they lost back. Ironically, that's actually possible for Callahan, but he doesn't realize it. And it's not possible for the one between them who doesn't cross a line into murderous territory. What Hero has that Callahan lacks is Baymax is that semblance of his brother that insists on healing rather than hurting, and a support system of friends, who, by the way, were also Callahan's friends, or at least his adoring students. And come to think of it, he also could have gone to them for help, which is really interesting. But here's where some of my criticisms come in. I do wish we knew more about Callahan's situation, why he doesn't have that support system, or doesn't feel like he can use it. What's the situation with his daughter's mother? What was his relationship with his daughter actually like? With what little is here, I understand the motivation, and he's clearly remorseful at the end when he gets arrested. So he may be a whole, compassionate human being, even though he did a horrible thing. At least I think he did a horrible thing. He certainly almost did. 
Remember, he didn't kill Tadashi in cold blood. He didn't do that on purpose. He's not an insane person, but we're invited to compare his situation with Heroes, and Heroes is completely fleshed out. But I don't know enough about Callahan to fully appreciate what's missing in his life, while Hero has Baymax. I am a little confused about what exactly happened with that fire, though, so now we can finally deal with that. I have been operating in my analysis under the assumption that Callahan intentionally started it to kill Cray. I don't think the character arc totally works if Callahan wasn't responsible for Tadashi's death beyond just not doing anything to save him, but I guess it's possible he had nothing to do with it. It's strange the movie never really makes it explicit either way. Here's what we know. A. Callahan holds Cray responsible for his daughter's ostensible murder. B. There is a fire at the convention. Several people run out of the building. C. Tadashi dies trying to save his mentor. Which I should have mentioned earlier, by the way. I liked that the last example he showed Hiro was being a hero himself. And it turns the knife even more that Tadashi was trying to save the man who might ultimately be responsible for his death. You see why this movie really needs that to be the plot point. Callahan survives because he's protected by Hero's microbots. And D, Callahan looks really guilty when he's forced into a police car. Regardless of which way it's supposed to go, I have questions. If Callahan did start the fire, why was he still in the building? Where was Cray, and why did Callahan expect him to still be there after so many people had left already? Was he really willing to kill dozens of people for his revenge? Why did a simple arson plan backfire so magnificently? And how did he get a hold of the transmitter he would have needed to tell the microbots to protect him? After he warns Hero not to sell his invention to Cray, he doesn't have the transmitter or any of the microbots that I saw, and that's the last time we see him before the explosion. Hero still has the transmitter. If Callahan didn't light it, he certainly didn't try to fight it. Yeah, Billy Joel reference. If he's not responsible, it is pretty convenient there was a fire, right when Callahan is planning to murder Cray. And I don't know why he's looking so remorseful at the end then, unless it's just because his plans were all for naught and now he's going to prison where he won't be able to see the daughter he thought he'd lost. If the idea is just that Hiro blames Callahan because he didn't try to save Tadashi with the microbots, which might be what's happening the more I'm looking at it, that's a huge misstep and really drops the movie down a notch for me. This is such a better story if Tadashi is collateral damage from Callahan's thirst for revenge. And that unexplained fire would be a giant plot contrivance in that case. I just can't be sure. In either event, I also have to ask how hard it really would be to get to Cray when you have these insanely powerful microbots you could use to murder him without anyone suspecting it's you. They're small, but they're not microscopic. So here's what you do. Wait until Cray is at another public function. Fit a microbot with an even microier camera, or link up like 6 or 10 or 15 if one is too small to put a camera in. That's still small enough, it would be pretty easy to just send the mess of microbots to wherever he is and have them shoot themselves through him like bullets. And they move pretty fast. Or knock something really heavy on top of him. Or open a car door while he's riding in a vehicle going 70 miles per hour on the highway and throw him outside. Why the elaborate scheme you're concocting from a private island? 
just because it's got to be poetic using the Stargate his daughter seemed to die in? I don't know. If you wanted him dead that badly, you have the means to do it in like 600 different ways. I, I just killed him three times in under 60 seconds, and I don't even want him dead that bad. The last story type is the team-building film. It's strange that for a movie called Big Hero 6, I've hardly referenced anyone else on the team besides Hero and Baymax so far. That's because the movie isn't really about any of them. I could complain that the other kids who become superheroes are all underdeveloped, but I'm not going to. Because this isn't actually a team movie. Again, as far as the other characters are concerned, it is a setup film that establishes archetypes that could be fleshed out later, and are, I'm sure, in the TV show, as hinted at with Freddy in the mid credit scene, where it's revealed that his father, played by and modeled off of Stan Lee, who continues to appear in the cartoon show, is a former superhero himself, which informs Freddy's superhero obsession and possibly his infantilization, since his father hasn't been around to raise him and he's coped by throwing himself into comics. This is, by the way, an interesting parallel to Hero, who also didn't have much of a male influence besides his brother growing up, and who was coping at the beginning of the film in his own immature but far more dangerous way. And this concludes my character analysis of any of the other four members of Big Hero 6, besides what part of Hero's personality they each represent, because they're all supporting characters to Hero's story. I'd go as far as to say a similar story could have been told entirely without them. But it would be a bit different. This is all about mental health after a traumatic loss. What it takes for a person to be made whole again when something like that happens. The movie argues we need two things. A moral philosophy, which Hiro inherited from the example of his brother, and a support system, his team. It's another movie about teamwork, but from an individual perspective. Not what the team all does for each other, but what they do for just one of them, who really needs them during a difficult time. It's not an ensemble cast movie, and that's why it works. It breaks out of the typical team formula by A, focusing on a central protagonist, and B, introducing the entire team and the inventions and motifs they'll use to build their superhero outfits around right up front. No clunkily introducing one at a time, hurriedly explaining their backstories and quirks, and then only leaving about 20 or 30 minutes left to tell any kind of story about them, like Suicide Squad, and Justice League, and Birds of Prey, so DCEU team movies? All of them? Oh sorry, the Snyder Cut isn't out yet. Uh, pardon me while I hold my breath on that. Big Hero 6 might as well spell hero the way the character does in the title. It's not Big Heroes 6 or even Heroes Big 6. He's not the lead singer in a rock band with his name at the front. He is this movie, and for the sake of the story, every other character represents a part of him that he needs to be whole. The team succeeds only when he pulls himself together and does the right thing. And their external success reflects his internal success at coping with grief. In a way, they're kind of like the Powerpuff Girls. Bubbles, Blossom, and Buttercup aren't fully realized characters in their own right. They're a whole person when you put them all together. That's how this team functions. The difference is, Hero is a completely realized character, and the others certainly might be down the line, but here, metaphorically, they are like the Powerpuff Girls. The team isn't complete without all six, in the same way Hero isn't complete if he ignores the parts of himself they all represent. So Freddy is Hero's thirst for adventure and his inner child. 
Gogo is his impulsive, tough, rebellious side. Wasabi is his sense of fear and restraint. Honey Lemon is his sense of optimism. And Baymax, of course, is his conscience and sense of responsibility. It checks the other four, which unfettered could each lead to disaster. And by their powers combined, he is Captain Planet. I'm just kidding. Odd how these things so often come in fives, though. And I'm not just arbitrarily describing these characters and then forcing those archetypes onto our protagonist. You see them all demonstrated in Hero in at least one major scene. Freddy is Hero when he and Baymax are testing out Baymax's new flight programming. Gogo is taking over at the beginning when he's going to robot fights and she's there when he almost kills Callahan. Wasabi is there when Hero gets nervous about speaking in front of a crowd at the science convention. And Honey Lemon is there when he builds his microbots, a machine with limitless application that he's naive enough not to even consider might be super dangerous in the wrong hands. And we've already talked about Baymax as the digital soul and conscience Tadashi left behind for his brother. Once Hero is whole again, they're free to start blossoming into their own complex and flawed characters, moving away from the archetypes like Freddy starts to at the end. I'm curious about how that's handled in the show. I've already said most of what I need to about Baymax, but I'd like to reiterate the point about Tadashi's digital soul. On first viewing, I really expected it to be yet another ambiguously self-aware AI. Does the robot have a soul? This time, the answer to that is yes, but it's not a robot that's become a human. It's a robot that sort of always was, because its creator put the best of himself inside Baymax. I love the slow realization that that's what drives him, as he protects his creator's brother, won't let Hiro become a killer, and risks himself to save someone else, just like Tadashi did when he tried to save Callahan, even if Baymax does kind of get to cheat his way out of that death. Baymax is a child slowly figuring out how to navigate the world, even though Tadashi's wisdom shines through his programming. And it's that simple way of viewing the world that helps him get through to Hero, even though, from Baymax's perspective, he's just performing his function as a medical assistant. Make the patient well. Which isn't too far away from the job description of a hero. It's that simple. Built into his coding is the physician's oath. Do no harm. It's interesting that Hero can teach him anything he wants to, and he'll learn it, even violence, but he won't do it against human beings, as per Asimov's first law of robotics. Everything about Baymax is designed to be pacifistic, from his soft, bounce-housey, marshmallowish design, all the way down to his interpretation of a fist bump. And this might be a massive reach, but I wonder. When he does the balalalala thing, is it because he's just not capable of mimicking an explosion with his mouth? Or is it because his function is so far away from destruction, he's not even thinking explosion when Hero does that with him the first time? A couple questions about Baymax's programming. First, I think there would be protocols in place so that he wouldn't accidentally perform medicine on someone without a proper diagnosis. He misconstrues a figure of speech at one point in a very first-season TNG data-like fashion to mean Hero needs resuscitation and he's about to zap Hero with defibrillation paddles. Yikes. He is brand new, and considering that video with all the work Tadashi did trying to get him right, you know, all those takes, maybe there are still some bugs to work out. But most of the time, Baymax scans a person before even suggesting any kind of procedure. That struck me as inconsistent for the sake of a joke. 
Secondly, and this probably happens for that same reason, sake of a joke, but why does Baymax act drunk when he's low on battery? I'd think you'd want to program a medical robot to shut down at the moment it's too weak to operate at full capacity. And lastly, I realized this would destroy the excellent thematic device of the memory card containing the essence of Tadashi, but I think you'd want the most critical protocols in an internal memory that can't be changed just by pulling the card out. Shouldn't the directive of don't hurt human beings be inherent to the robot itself? Imagine if Robocop's directives were so easily changed. In Robocop 2, that OCP lady had to at least hook him up to a computer and change a bunch of code around. And if that directive leads Baymax to closing the door in front of the card slots, where because Hero wants to do something destructive with him, he'll no longer give him access to the chip, why doesn't that precaution kick in in the first place? Or is that just the AI learning and the chip sort of protecting itself? Either way, it's a poor design. Before we get to my rating, let's look at some tweet-length reviews from some of our patrons. And if you would like to put in a tweet-length review in the future, you can go to patreon.com slash geekvolution and join the $5 tier. Saqib Tariq says, A surprisingly fun and heartwarming superhero team-up movie that spun off a few good shows, too. Austin Emery Smith, That's the Day Ghost, a film so meh that I'm pretty sure the initial pitch for it was a shrug. 1.5 out of 4. Connor Nielsen, more like Big Hero 6 out of 10. I admire the attempt, but the end result is frustratingly average and routine. Gun to my head, I couldn't name any of the characters not called Baymax. There are a few exciting sequences, and the animation is beautiful, but you can find more of that with better stories in other Disney movies. 2.5 out of 4. Thanos Survivor 21, I see Big Hero 6 like how I see some of the early MCU films. Good themes and characterization for the hero, and a lot of fun to rewatch, even if the villain isn't all that special himself, especially compared to Disney villains of the past. Still, it's a good film overall, 3 out of 4. Josh Hughes, watched it for the first time the night after my grandfather died. It was a great experience, 3.5 out of 4. Bag Studios, Early on, a lot of the acting feels very kids' movie, but after the fire, that's when things get real. The performances all improve, and Baymax is introduced. And call me a sap, but I love Baymax. He's so huggable, and all of his humor works for me, 3 out of 4. Jacob Schneider, a fun movie, a fun world. The main cast is all incredibly likable, but as there wasn't a sequel, they're not the most fleshed out of characters. If I had a complaint, it's that the movie seems afraid of the word death, and it drains impact from emotional scenes. I give this movie a 3 out of 4. Red Bandit. Though I wouldn't say it's my favorite Disney movie, I still enjoyed it a lot. The animation is great, and it's got a lot of great humor. My only criticism is that the characters seem kind of flat, and the animated series doesn't really help in that regard either. It's a fun movie with a lot of great action scenes. I give it a 3 out of 4. And finally, T-Edge 1, it's a solid movie and what Incredibles 2 should have been more like. 4 out of 4. Big Hero 6 is a unique family superhero movie that gets to the heart of mental health and coping with loss through an inspired science fiction concept. It's wonderfully optimistic about technology and its place in improving people's lives. It creates a thorough and compelling character study out of a team-based superhero movie creatively adapts an obscure comic book property for the big screen to create something pretty original and makes a fun, flashy, and exciting experience 
out of some surprisingly heavy and introspective material. If it weren't for that confusion about whether or not Callahan started that fire, I would go all the way to a 3.5. As is, I feel like I can only give Big Hero 6 a 3 out of 4. Ba, ba, ba. I want to say thanks, as always, for taking the time out to check out these reviews, whether you're listening on YouTube or on podcast platforms. If you have not checked out the YouTube channel, that is Geekvolution. We do two live shows a week there, plus lots of comic reviews and commentaries and other pop culture discussions. If you are listening on YouTube but you've not checked out the podcast, it is Superhero Rewind on Spotify and Anchor and several other podcast hosting platforms. I want to say thanks right now to all of our Patreon producers at the $10 tier on Patreon. Once again, patreon.com slash geekvolution. And that includes Iron Bat 1993, Zach, Wendell Jones, Victor, Nick Mana, Nicholas Morgan, Michael Micheletti, Michael Austin Gulick, Kareem Roberts, Jacob Schneider, Damon Begay, CM Productions, Thomas Edgehill, The Day Ghost, Stone Gasman, Snuffles Wrights, Lone Wolf Jedi of Gotham, Carl Maxey, Justin Hayes, Josh Hughes, John Matthew McLean, John Early, Ian McKee, Elliot Slater, Dylan Muschiello, Chewbacca's Lover, Caleb Azim, and Red Bandit. And thanks to all of our patrons. You guys are amazing. We really appreciate you. Next time, I'm going to finally tackle the Crow City of Angels. So look forward to that, and I'll see you again soon.